Daniel chapter 7 and Matthew chapter 6. And we're going to continue in our series in the Lord's Prayer. Uh, but before we do, we're going to read really a passage that should provide some background for us to the Lord's Prayer. It's a passage about five kingdoms. Daniel chapter 7 is a passage about five kingdoms. It's about the Babylonian kingdom, the Medo-Persian kingdom, the Greek kingdom, and the Roman kingdom. But you won't find those names in Daniel chapter 7. I should have mentioned the fifth kingdom. It's about the kingdom that Jesus Christ brings in through his church. So it's a tale of five kingdoms, but we're never given the names of political rulers. Instead, each of those kingdoms is described as an animal. Each of those kingdoms is described as a predatory animal, a destructive animal, until you get to the last kingdom, which is ruled by a man, one called the Son of Man. And maybe you'll remember that Jesus' most popular designation for himself, what he liked to call himself, was the Son of Man. And so you've got this sequence of uh, the Babylonian Empire, then the Medo-Persian Empire, then the Greek Empire, then the Roman Empire, and then an empire that will rule all the empires, ruled by a son of man. And if you're familiar with your Bible, I'll just tip you off and tell you that when we get to read that passage about the son of man, you will never read anything in the Bible more like Jesus' last words in the book of Matthew than Daniel chapter 7. There in Daniel chapter 7, the Son of Man is given a people from every tribe and tongue and nation to rule. Five kingdoms. You can take a history class. These were real historical kingdoms, four kingdoms, and then a fifth kingdom, the rules over them all. And then once we read Daniel chapter 7, we'll read Matthew chapter 6, verse 9 and following. Daniel writes, in the first year of Belteshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. And then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Da Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came out of the sea different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then I looked and its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one like a bear, it was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth and it was told, arise, devour much flesh. After this, I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings, a bird on its back, and the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful, exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth that devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was devoured from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. It considered the horns, 
And behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in his horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. And I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. He came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him and to the Son of Man. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Amen. Amen. Turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. And as you just read the Lord's Prayer one more time, just remember that Jesus was a man whose mind was saturated with the Bible. When he says words like holy or kingdom, he's not just hoping for a general spiritual effect. He's reaching back into the images of the Old Testament and hoping they're understood by his people today. Matthew 6, 9. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Here's our three words this morning. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are just unbearably weak. It's too much to even think about how weak we are when we come to deliver your word and, and, and how weak we are to think about even receiving it and it giving us any help. But our hope is in the power of your word, your own power, that your word is able to make the world, it's able to recreate the world, it's able to grow the weakest Christian and it's able to save the most hardened sinner. Lord, your word can smash the cedars of Lebanon in half. And we look now to the power of your word, and we ask you to help me speak it with clarity and love and compassion and boldness while you stretch out your hand to even do miraculous deeds 
And we pray that you do this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, we're focused one more time on the Lord's Prayer. And this means we're focused on what God wants to do in this world. I wonder if you've ever thought about it like that. You see, in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus tells us what to ask for. But by telling us what to ask for, he's also telling us what he wants to do. By telling us what our requests should be, he's cluing us in to what his replies will be. He's making it clear how he wants to act and what he wants to do. You, you could do no better to get a brief summary of God's agenda in the world than to look at how he teaches us to pray because he's teaching us to pray in a way that lines up with his heart and lines up with his wills and lines up with his desires, which is, by the way, the surest way to have answered prayer is to be praying for those things which God intends to do. And this morning, as we think about uh, this prayer and how it shows us what God wants to do, we come to the second request. Your kingdom come. And we know immediately that this is God's agenda. This is what he wants. God wants to build his kingdom on earth, get this, through your prayers. God wants to affect the most dramatic changes the world can ever know through your simple prayers. It's amazing. Never should a Christian feel futile. Never should a Christian feel stuck. Never should a Christian feel like there's nothing they can do to affect positive good in the world. And as soon as we know that God wants us to build our, his kingdom through our prayers, a question comes up in our minds. It's a nice spiritual thought. God wants to build his kingdom through my prayers. Sounds good. Here's the problem. What is God's kingdom? What are we even praying for? What does it mean to pray for his kingdom to come? How do you know when your kingdom prayers have been answered? What are we looking for him to do when we pray your kingdom comes? And my goal this morning is to give us a glorious and biblical vision of the kingdom of God that we're praying for. I want to begin in Genesis and move through the Bible looking at what does it mean when we pray, God, Lord Jesus, your kingdom come. I want us to know what we're looking for, what we can expect, and what we should be asking for as we cry to our Father, your kingdom come. Now, I've been thinking to myself the last few weeks, boy, Ryan, you preached this sermon that a lot of people were encouraged by that talked about how the Lord's Prayer was real simple, and now you're just going to ruin it for six weeks by doing these in-depth studies on each phrase that might communicate that the sermon is really complicated. That's not my goal. My goal is to take that simple prayer, never forget what we looked at that first week, that simple short prayer, and make sure we actually know what we're saying. Make sure the ideas in our mind are actually the ones that are shaped by the scriptures so that as we pray simple prayers, we actually some, have some biblical inclination as to what we should be looking for as we pray. And so I want to think with you about seven truths about God's kingdom. The first thing I want us to notice about God's kingdom is that it was the original pattern at creation. God's kingdom was the original 
pattern at creation. When we open up the Bible and we read the first chapter of the Bible, we see God speaking like an all-powerful king over his kingdom. He says, let there be light, and no committee is formed to decide how light ought to work. There just is light. He says, let there be waters, and at the word of his mouth, there are waters. And then the king of kings created a man and a woman to rule like a king and a queen over the world that he had made. It's the highest view of humanity you can find in any philosophy, worldview, or religion, that the king of kings makes a man and a woman to be a king and queen over his creation. And then listen to his words to them in Genesis 1, 27 through 28. He says, God created him man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them equally in the image of God. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Did you hear it? Did you hear the kingdom language? Here's this ruler coming in and unilaterally saying, Here's what you should do. And what he says to the man and the woman is, you should listen to the words. You should subdue. You should exercise dominion. And it shouldn't be a crushing dominion or a crushing subjugation. It should be life-giving, fruitful, multiplying. Wherever you go to rule, things ought to get better and more fruitful, more full of life. God creates Adam and Eve and tells them to subdue the earth and have dominion over every living thing, and they were to expand and rule over God's kingdom. And the rule was not to be a cancer to the earth as it is often today, but it was to be life-giving. They were to be fruitful and multiply under the smile of God, and eventually, listen to this, that would lead them to have families, create culture, and civilization. And it's amazing, when you just get to the fourth, I don't know if you've ever bothered reading to the fourth chapter of Genesis, but, but just four chapters in, mankind is herding cattle, building lyres, which are a little like a guitar, and pipes, and they're using bronze and copper to make tools. That is, this little seed bud of humanity is forming civilization and culture. So the pattern God laid down, first point, pattern God laid down at the dawn of creation was a kingdom pattern. It was his people under his dominion, a people under his word, a people spreading his dominion into every aspect of life on planet earth. This is God's kingdom. As one person said, it's his people and his place under his rule. And to this very day, now listen to this, this is where it gets very practical. To this very day, whenever we build families, spread life, plant a garden, make music, build a house, we are acting in line with God's original kingdom plan. And when Jesus tells us to pray, your kingdom come, his desire is for his original intention to be renewed and restored. To people, for people to take up their place as the rulers of God's creation 
one more time. He is after a people who cultivate his place under his rule. That's the kingdom pattern at creation. Second point, God's kingdom is the pattern at creation. God's kingdom was perverted. That pattern of God's kingdom was perverted. Now, a lot of this might seem like theoretical background. I don't mean it that way at all. Actually understanding what planet we're on is one of the biggest issues you can face in the Christian life. Actually being oriented to what's actually happening in the world is one of the most important things we can ever know. What are the problems? And what we find is that God created a kingdom pattern, and that kingdom pattern was perverted. Shortly after God created the world to be his kingdom, the world became the kingdom of the devil. And I'm not overstating that. Shortly after God created the world to be his kingdom, the world became the kingdom of the devil. This happened because the people he made to rule under him, Adam and Eve, chose to follow the devil. Genesis 2, 16 and 17, God the king says, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. What's going on? God the king of kings gave a commandment to Adam the king, and if Adam obeyed, he would know life, he would multiply, he'd be fruitful, everything he made out of bronze and copper would be good, all his instruments would be awesome, all his family would be sweet and friendly, it was gonna be great. But if he disobeyed, all of it would end in death. Now it's important at this point that we notice how Adam disobeyed. Now you gotta get this. Humans, humanity's problem is not just sin. It's that our sin has handed us over to the rule and reign of the devil. When Adam disobeyed along with his wife, he followed, he did this by following the leadership and the lies of the devil. I can't read it to you in context today, but you can go to Genesis 3 this afternoon, and what you find there, you find the devil questions God's word. The devil says, did God actually say? Now, let me tell you this. It's kind of understandable now that 2,000 years into church history and thousands of years into human history, there's scholars who pervert the Bible. But listen, Adam and Eve didn't need to learn the original Greek or Hebrew to understand what God had said. It had been said to them in straight garden language, and there was a mutual understanding between them and God. So when, de- when the devil comes along and says, Did de- is that what God actually said? It's just a straight undermining. It's not, no, no intellectual sophistication. It's just a straight undermining of the very word of God. Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And then after questioning God's word, he directly contradicted it. The serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. The devil is setting himself as up as an alternate authority. God says you'll die. I say you won't. Who will you obey? And Eve gets stars in her eyes for that forbidden fruit. And Adam is rebellious from the heart and wants to follow his wife. And they reach out and they follow the devil. Satan questioned God's word, then he contradicted it, and then he promised a new source of authority. Adam and Eve would be like God, knowing good and evil. And what does this mean, knowing good and evil? 
Essentially, knowing good and evil means now they would be the ones in charge of determining what's good and evil. It had been God who determined what's good and evil. Now, Adam and Eve, you can be the ones who know what's right and wrong is. It was a call to autonomy that plagues us to this very day. So, follow what's going on here. The world was created with God as king, men and women as kings and queens under him, and the animals under them. God, man, animals. And in this moment, the functional order of the world was reversed. How things worked was turned on its head. It became the snake, the devil himself, then man, and God was forgotten. Snake, man, who is the Lord again? That's the order. Everything was turned upside down. The kingdom order, the pattern set at creation was perverted. And by perverted, I just don't mean it went from 180 degrees to 181 degrees or from 90 degrees to 91 degrees. I mean, it was completely shifted around. It was utterly turned on its head. Everything right became wrong. Everything wrong became right. Now, the new, here's why I say I'm not over explaining or no, I'm not exaggerating. The New Testament, that's the part of the Bible written after Jesus was born. The New Testament describes what I'm talking about when it says in Ephesians 2.2, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit of, is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That's how he describes the devil, the prince of the power of the air. He's at work in the sons of disobedience. This is the world system we're in right now, is that Satan is calling the shots. Satan is leading the trends, and people are following him along like lemmings. Think about this some more. How, how, to what degree does God speak about this? Think about the way the apostle Paul describes Satan in, second, in, in um, 1 Corinthians 4.4. 4. He calls him the God of this world. Now, if we came up with that, someone might charge me with blasphemy. God's the God of this world. Well, yes, but because of our sin, he has actually handed us over into the rule of the literal devil. In the Gospel of John, three times, Jesus Christ, who was God, calls Satan the ruler of this world. The ruler of this world. The ruler of this world. Who is the ruler of this world? Right now, the God of this age is the devil. Yes, he's under God's ultimate authority. And yes, what Martin Luther said is true. The devil is on God's leash, but the leash is long. And it includes a complete dominion over the peoples of this earth darkening their minds, leading them into all kinds of wickedness and perversion, and blinding them from seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It includes Satan taking the lives of all of Job's children. It includes Satan touching every part of Job's life except his very life. He was able to destroy his health. It includes Satan destroying Paul's travel plans. It includes Satan inciting child sacrifice in the Old Testament. It includes Satan tempting and accusing believers night and day. The rule of the devil is vast and wide and real because the kingdom has been perverted. How else do we make sense of the tragedies we even heard about this morning? Except there's a real devil who really has real power. 
and really has perverted God's kingdom and utterly upended the pattern God set down in creation. Now, I need to go a little bit further into the second point. God's kingdom pattern at creation goes God, man, animals. Satan it upends it, so it goes snake, man, who is the Lord? And the effect is felt in civilizations, not just individuals, but civilizations. I read to you that passage from Daniel, and I don't have time to do an in-depth study of Daniel, but perhaps you'll take my word that throughout the book of Daniel, we have a five-kingdom pattern, and this happens at least three or four times in the book of Daniel, where Daniel walks through the history of the Babylonian Empire, then the Medo-Persian Empire, then the Greek Empire, then the Roman Empire, and then it describes a little rock, a son of man, someone who will come and make another empire, a mountain that will fill the whole earth. And what's happening there is that Daniel is walking us through the four kingdoms between his time and the time of the Lord Jesus. But here's what I want you to notice. Every single one of those kingdoms is described as an animal. When you follow the snake, the civilizations you produce are beastly. They're wicked. They're predators. They stomp and kill and destroy people. And so you've got this description of the Babylonian kingdom as a lion, and then you've got this description as the the Medo-Persian kingdom as a leopard, and then as a bear, and then you've got this description as the Greek kingdom as a leopard. And then you've got this description of the Roman kingdom as just an animal you can't even describe, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth that devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what is left with its feet. It's interesting, historians, when they talk about the Roman Empire, describe, maybe you remember middle school history, the Pax Romanus. Okay, all you teachers can despair that your lives are meaningful. Just kidding. Um, But there is this... Or maybe you just didn't teach that part. What did you call the, I shouldn't have said that, I'm sorry. What, uh, remember the period of time when the Romans brought peace? Well, what history is often called a peace, the Bible this describes as a complete oppression. It was a peace that was born out of complete, stomping, maddening oppression. And so the, I just want to make a couple points here. I know we're getting into apocalyptic in the middle of a sermon, and that's probably not safe. But two things here. One, from the fact that you've got these four beasts, you're reminded of two things. One, no kingdom lasts forever. Babylonian kingdom, what is that now? It's Iraq. It's barely a country. The Medo-Persian kingdom, gone. The Greek kingdom, Well, Greece is hardly ruling the world now. The Roman kingdom, limited to Italy. All of those kingdoms only have a short time. That's the nature of human kingdoms. They only last for a time. They get built up, they get proud, they get knocked down. And then the other point I already made, they are always animalistic. They're always wicked, they're always horrible, full of unjust and brutal wars, slavery, oppression, prostitution, 
greed that crushes the poor, abortion, euthanasia that slays the weak. These are the animalistic marks of the civilization of this world. Okay, let me get to my third point. In creation, we see the kingdom pattern. Then we see under the devil, the kingdom perverted and all subsequent human kingdoms perverted. And then we see a new kingdom begin to be promised. Throughout the Old Testament, even while Babylon and the Medo-Persian Empire and the Roman Empire are crushing people, the prophets begin to speak of something new that's going to come into the world. Before you and I were born, before Jesus was born, prophecies began to be made that promised another kingdom. One of the most prominent of all those prophecies was made to a worldwide famous king. He's still studied in secular history to this day, King David. And King David was told this, listen to these words, in 2 Samuel 7. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, you shall come, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now listen to, the, listen to two things from this kingdom. First of all, all the other kingdoms have got a shelf life of say 200, 400, 500 years maybe, and then they're gone. David, this little Jewish king in a nation, just a little tucked in nation beside the Mediterranean, surrounded by enemies, gets told that from his loins will be a king who rules forever. And the shaping influence of that kingdom will not be Satan, the father of lies, but will be God the Father. God the Father is going to bring a new kind of kingdom into the world. I know this is a teaching sermon, but I can't resist. And that's you. And that's me. We are the inheritors of that kingdom. That kingdom that was promised so many years ago is the kingdom that Christians have come to be a part of. But that's for another point. For now, let me say this. This idea that was originally given to David, there's going to be a kingdom. It will never end. I'll be the father of that kingdom, says God. That promise, the Old Testament prophets, they got a hold of this and they couldn't stop singing about it. They were like a jazz musician with a good riff. I mean, they just couldn't keep playing it. They had to think about it over and over and over again. So you get to Isaiah and Isaiah's looking forward going, to us a child is born, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of his peace, of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold Hold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forward and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is what's being promised in the midst of all these wicked kingdoms, in the midst of a world that just feeds despair in the human soul and that feeds on greed and oppression. Another kingdom is promised, one that will never end, one where God is the Father, one where the increase of the government knows no bounds. And I can't wait to tell you, because I already read it to you, that it's after the lion and the bear and the leopard that's Greece 
and the monster that's Rome, that Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, at the cloud of heavens there came one like a son of man. This is not the second coming, beloved. This is when Jesus came the first time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. God's kingdom pattern was there at creation. It was perverted in every individual, and in every civilization it became beastly as it followed the snake. But another kingdom was promised that would come, and it would be a kingdom that was very humane. It didn't follow animals, but it was shaped by the Son of Man, the perfect man who would rule over all things. That brings me to my next point. And I say my next point because I can't remember if it's my third or fourth. But you get to that next point and here's what you find. What you find is that not only is the kingdom pattern in creation and then perverted and then promised, but the kingdom of God is then present in Christ and Christians. It's present in Christ and in Christians. I, rem- I wonder if you remember the first words Jesus preached in the Gospel of Matthew. I've been studying Matthew for quite a long time. I wonder if you remember the first words Jesus preached when he spoke up in the Gospel of Matthew. It says in Matthew 4, 17, he began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Is at hand. Now the kingdom of God is not promised anymore, says Jesus. It's not something you look forward to anymore, says Jesus. When he's on the scene, he now says, it's at hand. You ever worked with tools and you look for the tool that's at hand? It's the one you can reach. It's the one that's right there, accessible to you immediately. And he's saying, the kingdom of God is at hand. And in Luke's gospel, Luke 17, 21, he perhaps puts it even stronger. He says, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. It's in the midst of you. It's right here. It's right now. It's no longer a prophecy in an old book. It is present wherever I go. The reason he could say it's at hand and the reason he could say it is, it's, at, it's in your midst of you is because wherever the king was, the kingdom was. That's what's going on. He is the Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Now, there's this really critical factor in the New Testament that's everywhere. And even though it's everywhere, we're often not quite sure what it's doing there. And what's really pervasive In the New Testament is Christ, he goes around doing a number of things, and Reformed people love one of them, (laughs) teaching. He went about teaching, and all God's people said, amen. (laughs) But you would be disappointed if you were looking for Jesus just to leave behind a book of sermons. He went around doing miracles of healing, And he went around doing exorcisms. 
And the reason he did this so repeatedly is because he was upending the devil's perverted kingdom. All that the devil had brought into the world in terms of demonic possession, in terms of demonic influence, and all the devil had brought into the world in terms of sickness and death, Jesus was upending. These miracles and these exorcisms are not coming out of nowhere. They're coming out of this long story of God's created pattern, God's perverted kingdom where the devil has made himself number one. Now Jesus, who was promised, isn't just thinking, well, what can I do while I'm here? Maybe I should do a No, he's not thinking like that at all. He's laser-focused, on target, with dealing with the works of the devil, and so he's healing the sick, and he's healing the blind, and he's casting out demons, and he's speaking the truth, because all of these are where the devil rules and reigns. And so the King of kings and Lord of lords has come to be present with his kingdom. You know, sometimes we will say, man, the Sermon on the Mount, that is awesome truth. And many of you have loved going through the Sermon on the Mount, and it is awesome truth. But we forget how on earth there ever became to be a crowd that would listen to the Sermon on the Mount. You remember? Well, cast your eyes, if you will, to Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, and ask, how did Jesus gather a crowd? He didn't have an airplane where he could fly a banner behind it. He didn't have advertising in the local Galilee Post. He gathered a crowd with supernatural and miraculous kingdom power. So it says in Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, and he went throughout all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction among the people, What happens when you heal every disease and every affliction among the people? So his fame spread throughout all Syria. That's not Israel. That's the gospel going out to the Gentiles. So he healed every disease, every affliction. His fame spread throughout Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures, paralytics, and he healed them. Great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea beyond the Jordan. And once this international group of people was gathered, he thought, oh, this is a good time to preach the Sermon on the Mount. And the whole thing was a display of kingdom power, healing power, demonically overthrowing power, deception overthrowing power with his truth. This is what he's bringing into the world. And the kingdom is present in him. The kingdom is present in him. Jesus did not just come bantering about philosophical or religious ideas. Jesus came with a display of sovereign power. He came displaying the same power that created the world and overthrowing the power that had perverted the world. And that same power is present in Christians. That same power is present in Christians today. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13 through 14, God has delivered us from the domain. That's kingdom language, isn't it? God has delivered us from the domain of darkness 
and transferred us to the kingdom. That's definitely kingdom language. So God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us, believers, to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Every single Christian is no longer a citizen of the perverted kingdom. Every single Christian is now a citizen of Christ's kingdom, the kingdom of His, God's beloved Son. It's a kingdom that's fruitful. It's a kingdom that's multiplying. It's a kingdom that because of Jesus' death on the cross has forgiveness of sins. That is, you can have been in the wrong kingdom and you can get into the good kingdom because it brings you in forgiving you of all your sins, forgiving you of being part of that perverted kingdom. It brings you in, redeems you, it makes you part of another kingdom. And you know what the New Testament Christians did? As they went out into the world preaching the kingdom? They did all the same things Jesus did. They preached the truth. They did miracles. They cast out demons. They healed the sick. Of course, we could see this repeatedly in the book of Acts, but someone would say, well, that's just the apostles. So we'll go to the congregational letter to the whole congregation in Corinth, and we'll see what Paul says to an entire church. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to the other the utterance of knowledge, according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who appoints to each one individually as He wills. In the New Testament church, some spoke truth, wisdom, and knowledge against the devil's lies. Some healed the sick, healing of the spirit. Others worked miracles like exorcisms, upending the devil's rule to another of working of miracles. And the congregation was one of truth and power. The kingdom was present among them. The kingdom is present in Christ and in Christians. Fifthly, the kingdom progresses. The kingdom progresses. It's, we're given the pattern of creation, then that's perverted by the work of the devil and the sin of man. After it's perverted, a solution is promised. When Christ comes, the solution is present. And it's present by truth that upends the devil's lies, but also by power that overthrows the devil's reign. Appetizers of his complete overthrow on the last day. 
But not only is the kingdom present in Christ and in Christians, but the kingdom progresses. And now we're getting right to our text, aren't we? Thy kingdom come. Thy kingdom come. That's an interesting prayer. Because we know the kingdom's already present. Jesus, before he said those words, said, the kingdom is in the midst of you. It's at hand. But there's clearly something theologians like to call this already and not yet about the kingdom. It's already there, but it's not yet in all its fullness. It's inaugurated, but not consummated. It's come truly, but not fully. So the kingdom has come into God's people, it's come into the world, but the fullest expression, the fullest expansion of the kingdom awaits the answers to our prayers. This is amazing. The kingdom of God progresses. Now, I could illustrate this to you many ways, but let me just give you the best verse I know to explain to you what the advance of the kingdom looks like. It's the last verses of the book of Matthew. It's what Christians often call the Great Commission. It's what's left of the kingdom's advance. Apparently, for the Lord, he wasn't really happy to be a boutique God in Israel. He wants to be the King of kings and Lord of lords of every single people, tribe, and planet. No, sorry, that was too far. Uh, we'll be satisfied with earth. Tongue, nation. Should have had another donut. All right. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. What a statement. You ever heard that statement before? Yeah, you did, Daniel chapter seven. One like the Son of Man came to the ancient days and all authority was given to him. After the resurrection, Jesus was given all authority to rule and reign and to conquer. And he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples, teach the whole world to follow me. Of all nations, baptizing them in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The Son of Man who would be given all the nations to rule, Jesus is saying, that's me. And when we pray for God's kingdom to come, we're praying for missionaries to be sent out, to win nations, to all, to Christ. We're praying for churches to be discipled so they know all that Christ commanded. And we're praying for unbelievers to be brought in and baptized so that Christ's kingdom is expanded. This morning as we witness baptism, what are you watching? The expansion of the kingdom. The growth of the kingdom. The promised kingdom to David, the promised kingdom to Daniel is coming in our midst every time the waters of baptism go sploosh, the God of heaven is gathering to his army and gathering to his kingdom. Now, whenever I speak on the progress of the kingdom, I get a little sad because our individualistic ignorant of a history, Western hearts, uh, forget that we're 2,000 years into church history. 
So we pray, your kingdom come, and we kind of act like we're the first person who ever prayed it. I think it was Timothy George, the church historian, who said his job as a church historian was to teach people that there was someone before your grandmother and Billy Graham, and it mattered. Christ's kingdom has been coming for 2,000 years. And it's why you can't go to a country in this planet and not find some little secret group of believers tucked away worshiping Him. And it's why there's many countries where there's a church on every corner. It's because the Great Commission does not start with us. I have this pet peeve. You go to missions conferences and they always say, the gospel is going forward from, Jer from Jerusalem to Judea and to all the ends of the earth. And they always say, so find your Jerusalem and find your Judea and find your ends of the earth. And I always think, oh, that's kind of good. But it totally misses the fact that we already took Jerusalem, then Judea, and we've been conquering the ends of the earth for the last 2,000 years. The gospel does not begin when I'm born. The gospel does not begin when my church plant's planted. The gospel began when Christ sent out His Word by the Spirit, and people in Jerusalem were saved, then the Samaritans were saved, then the ends of the earth of the Apostle Paul were saved, and it's been advancing ever since. And God told us to expect this kind of thing. It's why in Matthew 13, Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds. But when it's grown, it's larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so the birds of the air can come and make nests in its branches. The kingdom started as 120 believers in Jerusalem but it now includes churches all over the planet and the Gentiles come like birds and make their home in its branches. And someone, someone will say, oh, the world's getting worse, the world's getting worse, the world's getting worse, the world's getting worse. Well, I will admit we're having a bad inning. But over the last 2,000 years, Christ has been unstoppably influencing this world. And he hasn't been doing it through armies. He's been doing it through the slow, steady influence of leaven. You know, every uh, two or three years since I was a boy, uh, women start passing around sourdough starters. It's just sort of something that happens. There you are, nothing's happening, and all of a sudden someone's got a sourdough starter, and then everyone's passing out sourdough, and then it dies, and then it rises again <laughs> every two or three years. And when Jesus talks about leaven, He's probably describing something akin to a sourdough starter. And he says this, the kingdom of heaven, we're talking about the kingdom now, is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour. Three measures of flour, by the way, is enough flour to feed an entire village. So it, we're being given this hyperbolic image, little sprinkle of the sourdough starter, a village's worth of flour. And what does it say? Till it was all leavened. The kingdom of God comes in and influences until the entire lump of the world is influenced by its power, which means that the Christian church punches above her weight. The Christian church exercises an undue influence. Now, earlier this week, and I'm commending this to you, and I got a lot more to say, but apparently I'm wrapping up after this story, and we're going to get you baptized, young lady. 
Um, I'll end here and we'll come back to this. Earlier this week, I found out that D. James Kennedy, Florida preacher, has died uh, 10 or 20 years ago. D. James Kennedy uh, wrote a book called What If Jesus Had Never Been Born? And this book uh, charts the influence of Christianity. I've shared this kind of stuff with you before over arts, sciences, Hospital, modern hospitals find their roots in Christianity. Modern universities find their roots in Christianity. Modern sciences find their roots in Christianity. D. James Kennedy charts all of this, and, and it's interesting, he does the same thing that's done in a Christian sociologist book, uh, How Christianity Changed the World. He does the same thing that's done in an atheist book, Tom Holland's Dominion, interesting name, how the Christian revolution changed the world. In other words, you've got secular and Christian scholars who will all tell you any honest looking at history tells you that when that baby was born and that man suffered and died on the cross and then he rose from the dead, it was the single greatest transformational effect on civilizations everywhere. Anyway, I found out D. James Kennedy's book had been made into a documentary, so I did what any good dad did, and I bought the ingredients for milkshakes and told my kids we were watching it on a Friday night, because this is kind of the wild fun we have in the Fullerton home. And it's just amazing to watch how at every level of culture, Jesus has never advanced, not rightly at least, by the sword, but his influence on education, his influence on the rights of women, unparalleled, the influence on every aspect of human culture is utterly transformative. So I got a little more to say next week apparently, but for now we'll leave it with this. The kingdom of God follows a pattern laid down at Christians, like laid down at creation. God's people, God's place, ruled by God's word. It's perverted when men and women follow the snake. They become beastly, their civilizations become beastly, and the only hope is that God's made a promise that a new kind of civilization will come that's humane and it's ruled by the Son of Man. When that king is present, he comes with kingdom truth and power. And not only does he come with truth and power, but he gives his people truth, and power. And that kingdom progresses through our prayers so that it starts very small and it grows to be global and it looks very inconsequential, but turns out those little acts of obedience turn out to leaven the whole planet and transform every area of life. Won't you come and be on the right side of history? Won't you come and repent and believe? Won't you come and turn away from the kingdoms that are passing away and the devil who will be destroyed and follow the Son of God who died for sinners and would love to bring you into his kingdom and love you forever. Father, we come before you. We ask you to give us grace. We ask you to pour out your spirit on us. We ask you to make us kingdom builders in our little places of work in our little places of influence. We pray that you'd make us people who are like leaven in the world, transforming the kingdoms of this world into the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ.
pray this in Jesus' name, amen.